This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows. Guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Ah, nothing says Christmas like Leonard Cohen's immortal Everybody Knows. Well, not exactly a Christmas carol, granted. However, even paranoids and conspiracy nuts, such as myself, uh, enjoy Christmas, love Christmas, in fact. Uh, so tonight we'll, uh, we'll uh, give you sort of my version of a, uh, a Christmas special. The Conspiracy Show Christmas Special, if you will. And uh, what Christmas special would be complete without a visit from our good friend up in, uh, or down rather, in, uh, I believe he hails from uh, Buffalo or Tonawanda. Uh, Pastor Harry will be with us uh, sometime after midnight. The founder of the uh, Church of Philadelphia Internet and uh, the author of couple of rather uh, controversial, inflammatory uh, uh, tomes, Escape 666, Bible Prophecy Revealed, and The Answer to Raptures. Pastor Harry uh, will be here, and uh, he's got a, uh, a burr under his saddle uh, that has to do with Christmas, of course, and that is uh, Santa, Santa Claus, that jolly old elf. Well, the pointy ears, actually, if he is a, an elf, might be a dead giveaway because um, uh, Pastor Harry believes that Santa Claus is akin to Satan. He's quite adamant that if you are uh, teaching your children or grandchildren, as the case may be, about Santa Claus or to believe in Santa Claus, well, that's... Um, as I say, akin to Satan worship, and he'll be along to explain about uh, uh, his campaign called Santa Be Gone. Now, I, uh, uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I, we, we, uh, we don't teach our kids about Santa Claus per se. We teach them 
about St. Nicholas, who was an actual historical a figure uh, who, who uh, was living in Asia Minor back around two a uh, second uh, second century AD, I believe. So uh, I'll anyway I'll I'll, um, I'll have it out with uh, Pastor Harry a little bit uh, later. Now uh, off the top, first of all, Merry Christmas, uh, Dan Ellison, and uh, when I. Um, Invite uh, callers to the program. Please uh, say hello to Dan and wish him a Merry Christmas as well. Uh, What um, Christmas special also would be complete without a discussion about, uh, well, perhaps one of the the most popular and puzzling mysteries of the Bible, and that is uh, the Star of Bethlehem its inclusion at the very beginning of the very first gospel, according to my next guest, raises so many awkward questions for Orthodox Christianity that one has to wonder how it ever made the, uh, the cut in the first place. So why would the author and editors of the Christian gospels choose Zoroastrian Magi and astrology to herald the coming of Jesus Christ? Did the Magi have some special significance then that we've since lost? After all, the New Testament narrative opens with them. So who were the Magi? And did their astrological beliefs really lead them to Jesus? Now for the first time in her book, The Star of the Magi. My guest has a solid background in the history of astrology, ancient religion, and she's going to uh, talk to us about the star. I think you'll find the result is uh, breathtaking, uh, a a breathtaking blend of history, religious studies, astronomy, and astrology that tells the whole story as it's never been told before, and a a great pleasure uh, to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Courtney Roberts, author of Star of the Magi. Hello, Courtney. Hello, Richard. It's good to have you back. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Well, uh, I guess before we talk about this um, astrological or astronomical event, in order to do that, um, we sort of have to give it some uh, time frame, right? I mean, you can't, you have to determine the approximate date of Jesus' birth in in order to then look back uh, and determine what it was, because just about Every year, there is some sort of uh, uh, a sky phenomena. Uh, if you know what I'm saying, you can't. You 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 have to first establish a time frame for Jesus' birth. Is that correct? A fair assessment. Well, that is the astronomical approach, and I think that's been one of the most um, popular approaches to the the mystery of the star over the last. 100 years or so. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, several times in any year, there's something amazing going on in the sky that, that people notice. You know, there's, there's nothing unusual about unusual things happening in, in the heavens. Uh, but yeah, if you've outlined the astronomical approach, and I will say that that has produced um, any number of conflicting theories, indeed a, a new theory almost every, every year at Christmas. Uh, so it, it may not be the most effective methodology, but that is, uh, again, the astronomical approach. 
Well, then uh, explain uh, your approach, uh, because you're coming at it from uh, uh, a a, a cultural astrology perspective. Mm -hmm. So so how did you uh, uh, try and, you know, wrap your head around this and and, and conduct your research? Well, um, that's a a good question, because I think for a lot of people, the starting point, uh, the question that they raise is, you know, what what was the star of Bethlehem? What was it? Um, And... Again, that's a question that has produced uh, almost as many answers as there are researchers that have taken it on. Um, I'm not sure that's the best question to ask. Uh, I've asked questions, uh, you know, as as you raised in your introduction about, you know, why on earth would the author of the Gospel of Matthew think that putting Zoroastrian magi with astrology would, would be convincing? Uh, to his target audience, it seems awfully, uh, you know, pluralistic and and unorthodox. So, so what would the, these these magi have meant to the people that Ma- that the author of Matthew was writing to um, in the first century, and who who were largely uh, Judeans? Um, most of his gospel is targeted to an obviously. Judean audience and, you know, addresses obviously Judean concerns, in which case, you know, why Zoroastrian Magi? What did, what did they, they mean to his target audience? And I think when we start uh, asking questions like that and raising questions like that, we come up with uh, a real big picture kind of answer, because um, to, to understand ancient astrology, you, you, you first have to realize that there were traditions. There were large bodies of traditions that you know people in the field were uh, aware of, and that's that's another flaw with that astronomical approach. The idea that you can just find something that happened in the sky and assume that for people in the first century this meant that a Messiah was going to be born in Jerusalem. You're, you're just leaving an awful lot out there. You know, and I think it's better to start with, you know, what were the actual astrological and astronomical traditions of the people involved, of the Persian Magi, uh, of the Judeans in Matthew's time? And again, that just brings up much better answers and, uh, and a much more complete picture. And I, and I do have to raise at least this question at the outset, you know, um, was there a, quote, star of Bethlehem at all? Um, I think uh, we would be in error if we were reading the story in Matthew as history in the modern sense. Um, It is a very late addition to the Gospel, and most scholars would say that it probably didn't even show up in the introduction to the Gospel until maybe as late as 80 or 90 A.D. It is not a, a first-hand eyewitness account, not by any means. And I think when we start interpreting it literally and assuming that this actually happened the way that he described it, I, I think we get into some problems. Whereas, again, if we look at it in the sense of, you know, how would this be meaningful to his audience? And what's the bigger picture that he's trying to convey? Again, we get, we get much better answers that way. So I'm, I'm not even entirely convinced that there was some star that people saw 
you know, before or at the time of the birth of Christ that really told them that this amazing thing was happening. I mean, may- maybe it did happen. I don't mean to be cynical. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm going to take Matthew's story with a really big grain of salt, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Courtney Roberts is the author of The Star of the Magi, the, hit, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Uh, when we come back, uh, Courtney, I'll get you to explain how it is that you've uh, determined or, or how it's been determined that the uh, we always hear about the three wise men of course nowhere in the uh, uh, gospel does it uh, identify three it just says uh, uh, I don't even know if it says wise men but uh, uh, how you have I- identified them as uh, essentially Persian uh, astrologers uh, followers of uh, Zoroastrianism and uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, place to start when we come back. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Pastor Harry will be here sometime after midnight with his battle cry, Santa be gone. He says, teaching children, grandchildren to believe in Santa Claus is akin to Satan worship. Oh, my Lord. Pastor Harry, uh, this may be a little beyond the pale, even for him, but uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll speak to him directly in about an hour. Right now, Courtney Roberts is with us, the author of The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. We're talking about the Star of Bethlehem. What was it exactly? Now, the uh, the Magi, the... Uh, uh, how did you determine, or has it been determined, if uh, or, or the, they they were in fact uh, Zoroastrians? Uh, now, this is one of the oldest religions, I guess, next to Hinduism. This is one of the oldest religions in the world. Absolutely, and and that's a that's a really good question. And the answer is is quite simple. Uh, the the author of that part of the Gospel of Matthew, um, whoever it was, and, and we don't know, um, states that there came uh, Magi. And in the, uh, the the earliest editions we have of this are in Greek, so I don't think it was originally written in Greek. I think it was originally written in Aramaic, but in the original Greek editions, he uses the word magi, which is the plural of uh, magus or magus. And he says they came from the east. Now, due east of Jerusalem uh, lay the Parthian Persian Empire. And, of course, um, the hereditary priestly caste of the Persian Empire and the Persian Zoroastrian religion were the Magi. And so they were uh, due east from Jerusalem. There were definitely Magi there. We have you know, documents from the first century Parthian Empire that shows that the Magi um, were very much uh, a part of the, the empire and of the governing of the empire, and they had um, long-standing cultural, religious, and political ties with the Judeans, especially when it came to uh, fighting Roman occupation and specifically restoring uh, a Judean king of a Judean dynasty uh, back on the throne in Jerusalem. In fact, only 35 years before the birth of Christ, the the Parthians had invaded and driven uh, King Herod 
off the throne and restore the Jewish king. And the Romans fought back and put Herod back on there. But there's, there's a long history there. Also, the Magi, the Persian Magi, uh, were, were famous throughout the ancient world as uh, cracking astrologers. And uh, the word Magi is almost synonymous with um, astrologer. They were also very good at dream interpretation, but the kind of astrology that they practiced is, is really relevant to this whole story. When, when we use the word astrology nowadays, we think of uh, you know star sign columns in the newspaper or on the internet or, or whatnot. Um, the Persians had a, a different kind of religious astrology. They were very big picture kinds of people. So they were looking at using cycles of planetary motion to determine uh, big historical events, specifically the rise and fall of um, kingdoms, dynasties, and empires, um, the coming of great prophets and new religious revelations, a kind of messianism, and ultimately, of course, for the Persians, the thing they were most looking out for was the, um, the upcoming great battle between good and evil at the end of the world, which for them, all of creation was always leading up to that um, apocalypse where good was going to was destined to win forever. So uh, I, I think it's really kind of a no-brainer. It doesn't take a, a big leap to uh, realize that, you know, Matthew, the author of Matthew is making very direct reference to um, the Persian astrologers who lived due east of Jerusalem who had a vested interest uh, in the politics of Jerusalem. And, and in fact, that's the, the question that he puts in the mouth of the Magi as they arrive in Jerusalem is, where is he who was born king of the Jews, and that would be a question dear to the hearts of any Persian magi. So, so uh, you know, that's my basis for, for saying that uh, they're Zoroastrian magi. That's exactly what Matthew calls them. Now, uh, would it not also be a fulfillment uh, that, that it would be the, um, the magi uh, come to, to follow the star, star? Would it not be a fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, uh, a prophecy because a, a Daniel while in B- Babylon, my, um, my understanding was that he, while in Babylon, was the chief of the Magi, was he not? And, it, and, and um, there's something uh, where he has a vision where he talks about, um, you know, that the, the, the Messiah will be announced in due time by a star. And it's, uh, he left it to sort of the secret sect of the Magi for its uh, uh, eventual fulfillment. So... I mean, would would it, that not make sense from a biblical standpoint? Then that that uh, that it would be the Magi. Well, um, you're you're getting into biblical tradition rather than history and archaeology, and I think it's important to understand the difference between the two. Um, the Book of Daniel, which purports to be written. Um, at the time of uh, when the Persians conquered Babylon, 538 B.C., the time of the Judean captivity in Babylon, is, uh, is a much, much later document, uh, maybe as late as uh, 2nd century B.C., and we really don't know who the author was. Um, so a lot of this tradition that, uh, you know, Daniel was the head of the Magi in Babylon, you know, it, it's not history. It's, it's not archaeology. It's 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 tradition, and, and there's probably very little basis in, in fact. Um, one thing you do find is um, certainly after the birth of Christ, the more orthodox um, practitioners of Judaism and the more orthodox Christians 
really try to create some kind of biblical lineage for the Magi because they, for Matthew's Magi, because they try to, you know, trace everything back to the Bible to keep this kind of monolinear historical narrative going that's, that's all leading up to them. But again, we're, we're talking tradition. We're not, we're not talking about uh, history. The history is, um, is pretty plain. And I don't think that we really need to try to create some kind of biblical or Judean lineage for the Magi. The Persian Empire was huge in the ancient world. It was extremely powerful. Uh, and Judea was a, a colony of the Persians for several centuries. Oh. Uh, Judea was a very tiny, tiny little country. It was podunk in comparison. So I don't think the Persians were looking to the Judeans for lineage. It was more like the other way around. When did we, we start to uh, 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 give the, the Magi uh, names? I mean, we've, we've come to know them as Balthazar, king of uh, Arabia, and uh, Melchior, king of Persia, and Gaspar, king of India. When did that happen? Yeah, that's all later Christian tradition. That's all going on in the, you know, 4th century, 5th century, and and on out. And there's just massive bodies of tradition uh, about the Magi, uh, all stemming back to this, you know, very small reference um, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, oh. Again, it's it's not history. It's it's lore. All right, we'll, uh, we'll come back and... Um, uh delve further into the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem with Courtney Roberts, author of The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Phone lines are open as well for comments and questions. What do you think the Star of Bethlehem was? Some sort of galactic alignment? Was it a supernova? A comet? Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If we assume that uh, the most likely time frame for the birth of Jesus was in the years before AD 1, uh, and we also assume that the Star of Bethlehem could be observed by sky watchers elsewhere in the world, not just by the Magi who followed the star uh, to Jesus' birthplace, uh, what was it then, we have to ask ourselves? What would be the, the prime suspects in this mystery? Comets, brightening stars known as uh, nova, exploding stars known as supernova? The, uh, the Chinese did a particularly good job of cataloging uh, astronomical phenomena, and they recorded no such phenomena during the years in question. So what was it? What was the star of Bethlehem? Was it, in fact, even a star? Courtney Roberts is uh, my guest, and she is the author of The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. Okay, so, Courtney, we've established the, uh, the, uh, the, the Magi, these uh, uh, great astrologers. What do you think, then, uh, let's, as, assuming that, uh, that they were following something, and this uh, account in, in, in Matthew is, uh, is true, what, what are the logical conclusions uh, conclusions are the best suspects for what they were, in fact, uh, following? Okay, well, we do know um, some very interesting things about the kind of astrology that the Magi practiced. And, and I, I noticed that I'm the only person that, that, that asked that question. What kind of astrology did 
the Magi practice? I, I just think that's a really good question. And again, the astronomical approach, they, they look at the sky and they pick out something. They say, oh, this must have been meaningful, as if the Magi were a bunch of, you know, idiots who, who just wandered around seeing things in the sky and deciding a Messiah was coming. And, and these guys were a lot more sophisticated than that. And I think, you know, we need to start by giving them a little credit and understanding that they operated within a tradition that had been going on for hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And, you know, start asking about them as, as real people with a real belief system. So we, we do know some really interesting things about the kind of astrology that they practice because it was preserved in uh, later Persian astrology, which was picked up by um, the Islamic Empire uh, under the Abbasid Caliphs in the 8th and 9th century um, AD when they, they built Baghdad. So we have texts that uh, date back to, again, 8th century AD and going back into even earlier Persian empires, 3rd and 4th century AD, Sasanian texts that tell us you know, quite a bit about uh, how the Persian Magi did astrology. Now remember, first and foremost, they're big picture people. They're not doing birth horoscopes necessarily. I'm not saying that they didn't do them. That was a little bit more of a Greek thing. But um, they had a, a larger interest in great cycles of history. Remember, Zoroastrians, they're, um, they're monotheists, but they're very dualistic monotheists. So they believe that all of time and history, this very limited segment of finite time that we occupy, it was, it was all created to house this ongoing battle between good and evil, between the good god, Hura Mazda, and the evil god, Angramanyu. And it's all leading up to this ultimate battle between good and evil at the end of time, at the end of history, where good is destined to win forever and usher in a new millennium of peace where all the good people will live in peace forever. And, of course, for the, the not-so-good people, the ending isn't, isn't quite as happy. Well, that all sounds rather familiar, uh, Courtney. Oh, that sounds good. like the Christian Bible. <laughs> well, we don't usually give the Persians credit for these ideas, we think these ideas are Judean or Christian, and, uh, you know, I have to say historically that is very incorrect. But in the West, we do have this monolinear historical narrative of the history of religion that says, well, the Jews discovered God, and then Jesus came, and, and it just creates this line of religious authority that leads right to the Christian church and right, right to us. But this is tradition. It is not history. If you actually do the history, read the text, check the archaeology, these are plainly Persian Zoroastrian ideas and, uh, you know, reveal the extent of the cultural domination that the Persians influenced uh, over the Judeans and not vice versa. Okay, you know, here again at the receiving end of the Western Judeo-Christian cultural tradition, we think it all has to go back to the Jews. But that is a huge cultural bias in the ancient world. Again, Persia was really big, really important. The Judeans were, were very small and always on the brink of extinction. Okay, so we, we have to bear that in mind. Now, going back to the astrology of the Magi, um, what we do know is that, you know, and in this idea that they're waiting for this, this ultimate battle, as part of their um, religious chronology, they believe that, that the good God... 
in order to hasten this ultimate battle, would at the astrologically appropriate times in history send uh, these world saviors, these future deliverers, who would be like great prophets and they would spread the good religion far and wide into to new territories and help to bring about uh, the, uh, the triumph. Of, of good over evil. So they had this, this form of messianism that was built in to the um, astrology. They, of course, were also very interested in the rise and fall of new kingdoms, new dynasties, new empires, because that was tied into the good and evil thing, too. There were, there were certain kingdoms, like the Persian Empire, that they thought were kingdoms of God, and, you know, God-given kings. And then there were other kingdoms like the Greeks and the Romans that they were convinced were completely and wholly evil and, and served the evil god. And that was the situation that you had in, uh, in Jerusalem, where they were occupied by the Romans, and the Romans had put uh, a king on the throne, Herod, and proclaimed him king of the Jews. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was, he was Edomian. He was a Roman puppet. And again, as soon as they did that, the Persians had intervened and driven him off the throne to help the Judeans and put a, a Judean king uh, on the throne. Didn't last, uh, but, you know, they were always ready to, to try it again. So this is the kind of um, astrological concerns that the Magi had. Now, t in this astrology, there are two methods that we can discern that they relied on, uh, at least uh, in the main. Uh, first off was the idea of millenniums. Um, the Persians were really big into um, apportioning history into these discrete 1,000-year periods. And we actually have references, Greek references, going back to the 3rd and 4th century BC that talk about how the Magi and the Persians um, divided time into millenniums, and the millenniums were, were astrological, they were ruled over by a planet or a sign, and that, again, these millenniums housed this ongoing battle between um, the good God and the evil God. Now, again, this is an idea that is still very much with us, and we think it has some kind of Judean or Christian um, origin, but it, it's very much a a Persian innovation. So they used the millenniums. And of course, they argued about the millenniums. It wasn't rocket science. They didn't, you know, always agree on exactly when the millennium started or, or which astrological millennium it was. So they argued about this a lot. The second technique that they used, and they were very famous um, for this, was the cycle of Jupiter and Saturn conjunctions. And Persians had been keen on this cycle going back to maybe the year 522 B.C. Now, a lot of people don't recognize this, but Jupiter and Saturn meet up in the sky or conjunct um, in the same degree and the same sign of the zodiac regularly every 20 years, like clockwork, they meet up. And the beauty of it is that... Um, as they do this every 20 years, uh, each subsequent conjunction is um, almost exactly 120 degrees longitude behind the previous one. So that over time, they trace out this beautiful pattern of interlacing triangles around the zodiac. And uh, I've got a diagram of it in my book. You really have to see it to believe it. It's, it's really compelling, really beautiful. And this was you know, very meaningful in the ancient world. Jupiter and Saturn were, were the limits, the, the farthest planets that, that they knew of. And to them, these were the, the great 
timekeepers that apportioned history and gave meaning to historical time. So uh, they had a lot of traditions um, about this cycle. And obviously there's a, there's a conjunction every 20 years, and, and some conjunctions were more um, significant than others. So um, is it then possible, if I'm following the logic here, Courtney, uh, that, that Saturn and Jupiter might have, have passed so quickly or so closely at, at some point that without binoculars they would have looked like a single star? That would have to be a really, really tight conjunction. And, and again, um, I, I just am not willing to assume, based upon Matthew's description, that it's a single star that he's talking about. I mean, does it need to be? You know? Um, but that would have to be a pretty tight conjunction. Sure, it could happen. It could happen. But, um, you know, there's differences in declination, and there's parallax, and, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of things that can mess that up very easily. So um, it does happen, but, but rarely, rarely. So the, the Zoroastrians were looking for a, a messiah, uh, and they're, according to their uh, uh, belief system, there were to be a number of them scattered throughout history coming at, uh, uh, you know, important um, epochs. Right. Then, is, I mean, it, it, that does not discount the fact, though, that they, they, they were looking for one and found one in Bethlehem. Or, or so the author of Matthew wants you to believe. And this is my point. This story was not written at the time. It was inserted after the fall of, of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, maybe 80, maybe 90 AD, and I totally agree with you. He is absolutely trying to create the impression in the reader's mind that the Persians, the Persian Magi from the neighboring next door Parthian Empire, uh, predicted the birth of Jesus with their astrology and actually came looking for him. He is absolutely trying to create that image in the minds of his readers. Did it actually happen? You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't know if it did or not, and I, I'm not going to assume, but it would be very meaningful to his readers to believe that it did. It would give great credibility to the Christian Church's claims of Jesus as this great prophet that was bringing a new revelation, and, and specifically to their claims that he was the heaven-sent, God-chosen, king of Judea, and that the Judeans, in rejecting him and crucifying him, had brought upon themselves the destruction of Jerusalem, which, which is something that we forget about, I think, very quickly here 2,000 years later, that, you know, uh, within a generation after the birth of Christ, the Judeans were destroyed by the Romans. They, they were revolting, and the Romans got tired of it, and they burned Jerusalem to the ground, they burned the temple to the ground, and the Jews were a people without a home until after World War II. Did the Zoroastrians uh, mention uh, Jesus or um, a, a, a figure like Jesus anywhere in their, in their, their writings? Do you well, know? Uh, they have... Uh, vast and extensive traditions about the coming future deliverers. Um, the Sao Shiant is, is the word that they use. On, um, over the thousands of years of development of the Persian religion, 
um, you know, there's a lot of different twists and turns in these traditions, but uh, in many of the accounts, they would be actually like spiritual sons of the prophet Zoroaster, and they would be miraculously conceived by a virgin, um, you know, a lot of stuff that, that really fits into the, the image that Christians try to create um, for the parentage of Jesus, that he had no earthly father, he had a spiritual father, he was born of a virgin. This completely fits in with um, the Persian traditions. Another uh, sequence of events that plays out in the in, in Matthew, where where the uh, these three astrologers, or how many ever there were, have we established how many there there there, there may have been? He only uses uh, the plural. Okay. Magi. He never says how many there were. The the idea that there are three probably comes from the gifts because he does say that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, you know, people kind of assumed, oh, well, one had the gold and one had the frankincense and one had the myrrh. There were three. And, and you know, so it goes. That's tradition. That's how tradition goes. But he he just he doesn't say. He just uses the plural. But, but we were led to believe that the, the astrologers go to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we, you know, we have seen his star in the east and we're, we've come to worship him. Uh, I mean, how likely a scenario is that? I mean, would uh, these astrologers uh, or these magi uh, have been able to cross into uh, Judea uh, and uh, unnoticed uh, and... Uh, um, go, you know, directly to Herod, and, and uh, or would it have been a rather hostile welcoming committee? I, yeah, I, I think it's highly unlikely, and, um, you know, I can't speak with any great authority to that, but remember, um, only 30 years before this, um, the Parthians, um, goaded on by their magi, had invaded and driven Herod off the throne, and he'd had to fight his way back, so he had, uh, you know, a lot of reasons to fear them, and, and certainly the idea of them showing up in Jerusalem saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews, uh, and then going to Herod's court with this news, I, I'm sorry, that's kind of far-fetched. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, Herod was notoriously uh, murderous. And uh, again, if we can kind of take that, that bigger picture perspective, rather than just uh, assuming that, that this is history, we do know uh, from the author Josephus, that in in the years uh, 6 BC, 5 BC, Herod went on kind of a murderous rampage where he killed off several of his own sons, accusing them of plots to overthrow him. Now, there was a massive triple Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in 6 and 7 BC. Maybe we can uh, chat about that when we come back. Courtney Roberts, my guest, as we continue to delve into the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. My name is Richard Serrett. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Courtney Roberts is uh, my guest. And we're discussing the mystery of the Star of Bethlehem. Her book, Star, The Star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. And Courtney's website is www.courtneyrobertshome.com. C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S, 
H-O-M-E, CourtneyRobertsHome.com. I've linked up to her site on my site at uh, RichardSerrett.com. Just click on uh, her name that appears on the, uh, the home page, and that'll take you directly there. And uh, her books are available uh, through PayPal there. Uh, so, uh, the Star of Bethlehem, if we start to try and you know, retrace some of the conjunctions, and uh, I guess we can do this now with modern-day computer simulations, uh, Courtney. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very easy. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, there was a rather uh, uh, an interesting conjunction. Did you say 6 B.C.? Yeah, 6 and 7 B.C. Now, um, re- remember, the Magi did have their traditions, and some conjunctions were more important than others. Um, the conjunctions, because they moved in these triangles, these interlacing triangles around the zodiac, they tended to stay in signs of the same element, fire, earth, air, and water, for about 220, 250 years. Uh, and then they would shift into a different element. So that period of a shift when they were changing from, say, fire signs to water signs, was considered significant. Something would happen. So that's about every 250 years. Now, they also believed, and and this is one of the amazing things about their astrology, remember, they're they're big into the millenniums. Well, they believed by their math that uh, the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions took almost exactly a 1,000 years to make an entire circuit of the zodiac in order to, uh, to trace out these interlacing triangles all around the zodiac, it would, it would take almost, by their math, a thousand years for the, the conjunctions to go, say, from the beginning of the zodiac, zero degrees Aries, all the way, move all the way around the zodiac, back to zero degrees Aries. They thought that was about a thousand years. Their math was a little off, okay? We now know it's closer to eight to nine hundred years, but that's what they believed at the time. So they, they were really keen on using these conjunctions to apportion their millenniums, you know, when the millennium began, etc. So when they saw the Saturn and Jupiter conjunctions moving towards the beginning of the zodiac again, for many of them, that would be perhaps a signal of a new millennium of a really critical time. And that's exactly what was happening um, around the time of the birth of Jesus. But now going back to the Saturn and Jupiter conjunction in 6 and 7 BC, that one occurred in the sign Pisces, about halfway through the sign Pisces. What was significant about that one, it was, it was a triple conjunction. In other words, and this, this happens not infrequently with the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions, whereby, you know, Jupiter moves faster than Saturn, right? I, I think most of us realize that. So if you're watching them in the sky you, every night, you watch Jupiter catch up to Saturn and you have a conjunction. And then, of course, Jupiter's faster, so it passes Saturn. But then let's say they both turn retrograde, you know, because of the Earth's movement around the sun. From our point of view, it looks like planet slow down, stop, turn around, and start moving backwards. And we call that retrograde motion. Of course, they're not really moving backwards. You know, it's, it's just a, a reflection of our position relative to them. But that's what you see. So if you're watching these conjunctions, Jupiter catches up with Saturn, it passes Saturn, and then they turn retrograde, and they start moving backwards. Well, Jupiter is still moving faster than Saturn, so it's going to catch up and make a retrograde conjunction and pass Saturn again. Then they're going to stop at a certain point, turn around and go direct again, at which point Jupiter's going to catch up with Saturn for conjunction number three. And that's what was going on at 6 and 7 B.C. with that conjunction in, in the middle of, of of Pisces. It was a, a triple conjunction. And at one point, um, Mars, uh, the planet Mars, joined up with them as, as well, which was very significant 
in Persian astrology, because now you had the three outermost, most powerful planets um, all joined together. Jupiter, uh, Jupiter is known as the kingly planet, which is rather interesting as well. Well, it's it's known as a lot of things. It's known as a lot of things. It's it's a very positive planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, this year six seven BC, that's when we see Herod going on the slaughtering rampage and killing off several of his sons, who he claimed were trying to overthrow him. Now, if you understand the the temper of the times, and there's this big triple conjunction going on, everybody's going to be talking revolution. Everybody's going to be saying, oh, you know, what does it mean, and how does it tie in with the Persian prophecies, and it does it mean that this Messiah is coming, does it mean that the king's going to die? You know, there's just going to be a lot of um, talk and, and hysteria in general, and I think that's what we see happening in, uh, in Herod's court. So this was almost like the Zoroastrians 2012. Well, um, you know, I can think of a, it's funny that you mentioned that, I can think of a better candidate, because um, as I mentioned, this, Pis, this conjunction was in the middle of Pisces, but it was, um, let me get this right, 54 AD, uh, if, if they were really watching the skies, and of course they were, they would have realized even in 6 or 7 BC that the conjunctions are actually finishing up their cycle through the zodiac, and they're about to move to zero degrees, Aries, the beginning of the zodiac, which for many of them would mean the beginning of a whole new cycle, the beginning of a new millennium. And that conjunction actually occurred um, 60 years later in 54 BC. And that's when the conjunction was right at zero degrees Aries. And it, on the first day of spring, when the sun was there, it was a very, very significant chart. And I think that one would have been uh, infinitely more significant to the Persians than the one that occurred in 6 and 7 BC. It's spectacular as, as that one was. The, the one in 54 would have been more rightly seen as a a new millennium, a new era, and that's the conjunction that was in place for the destruction of Jerusalem in 69 AD. And it's only after that conjunction and the destruction of Jerusalem that this story appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so again, I think we have to, to factor that all in. Yeah, people were very excited about this stuff and they were talking about it, but um, they were arguing about it most of the time, and they had a lot of different opinions. Were there some Persian astrologers, some Magi that were actually such good astrologers that they figured all of this out beforehand and came looking for Jesus? I, I'm just not so sure, and part of my hesitation comes from spending a good part of my life in the astrological community. Astrologers are often you know, not as good as they, they claim to be, and they're often much better at spotting things in, in hindsight than than in foresight. All right, Courtney, uh, stay put. A few more questions remain on the other side. The mystery of the Star of Bethlehem here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Pastor Harry will uh, join us after midnight. Santa Be Gone is his uh, campaign. He says teaching children, grandchildren, uh, children in general, to, uh, to believe in uh, Santa Claus is akin to Satan worship. And uh, I know that's not going to sit well with a lot of you. And I'll let you have at Harry, as I say, after midnight. Uh, just a few moments uh, remain with uh, Courtney Roberts, uh, a different kind of astrologer, uh, to be sure. She looks at the big picture and the universe of meaning. 
And uh, her book is The Star of the Magi, The Mystery That Heralded the Coming of Christ. Uh, you, you, you mentioned that there's a lot of astrological ideas behind uh, this division of time, B.C. and A.D. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's a, a division that uh, came out of the 6th and 7th centuries when the Church of Rome assigned uh, a Scythian monk, Denis Exegius, to uh, actually try to you know, calculate the exact birth of Christ, because I guess they, they'd lost track by that time. But you notice how... Um, you know, we divide time right there. There's before Christ, and then there's, you know, year of the Lord after, after Christ. And I, I think there was a, a real prevalent idea in the first century A.D. Uh, among not just the early Christians, but, but many other cults of the time, that they were very much living at the end of the world and at the beginning of a, a whole new era. Now, there was a lot of astrological speculation behind that, and one of the most prevalent reasons was because the the Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions were uh, finishing up their old cycle in the Zodiac and beginning this this whole new cycle uh, in the sign Aries. So there certainly would have been um, a lot of speculation about that and a lot of exciting ideas about uh, a new savior or a new Messiah. But I, I think you see a lot of this uh, thinking in um, the Mithraean cults. Uh, there was a cult of Cori the Virgin in Egypt that had some very similar ideas. You certainly see it uh, in the, um, the cult of the emperor uh, in Rome, because this also coincides with the early days of the Roman Empire under Augustus, who used um, astrology uh, more so than than any uh, Roman ruler before or after him to establish uh, that that he was, you know, the the ruler of the world, and this was a whole new age uh, for Rome. So, so they were uh, many different. Uh, peoples in many different belief systems were appropriating um, this kind of astrological reasoning to declaring this a, a very unique time. And again, the the end of the old world and the beginning of the new one. And, and, and for many reasons, this is why I like to refer to Christianity as the original New Age uh, religion. They really believed that they were living in this, this whole new age. The the Zoroastrian priests uh, nowadays uh, do they are are they still adept uh, astrologers? No, uh, and it's, that's a great question because, you know, they, they are still around today. We have a community of them here in New York. Um, they got uh, kind of driven out of Iran, of, of course, after the Muslims took over. And in the 9th and 10th centuries, there was a great exodus of them from uh, Iran into India and there's a big colony in Bombay. Bombay is now the home of the largest Zoroastrian community. Uh, so it, in the process, they, they've gotten away from the astrology. I, I think the Islamic Empire took up the astrology more so uh, than the later Zoroastrians. So if you were to go to a Zoroastrian meeting today, which, which I've, I've had the, the honor and the privilege to do, um, the priests are, are very charming men, and they're very concerned with leading their flock, but for the most part, they don't know that much about astrology. They see it as a kind of historical artifact. Are they still uh, awaiting a, um, uh, a messiah? Uh, 
well, yes, they're still very much operating within that whole belief system, but I would add um, perhaps uh, in contrast to the way the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims interpret the whole apocalypse thing, because remember the Muslims are every bit as apocalyptic as Christians, if not more, um, they, they have an interesting way of looking at it in that, you know, they're very much on the side of good trying to defeat evil, and they see that um, it's kind of our responsibility to do as much good uh, here and now and every moment to, to bring it about, to good thoughts, good words, uh, good actions, and, and that's how the victory in the battle comes. So it's kind of as soon as humanity really gets its act together and starts living in a good way that, that all of this will happen naturally and, and good will triumph. So... Uh, they're a little bit more along those lines. I think the other monotheisms could learn something significant from that. All right, Courtney, what uh, what, what are you working on now these days? What's next? Uh, I'm doing a lot of sports, doing a lot of football and a lot of basketball. I've, I'm finishing up a, a book for Llewellyn right now on the astrological ascendant, the, the rising sign. And I'm living on the bay on Long Island and enjoying my long walks by the ocean. Good for you. Well, thank you for this, uh, Courtney. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Courtney Roberts and the star of the Magi, the mystery that heralded the coming of Christ. All right. Coming up next, the one, the only, Pastor Harry on the warpath, Santa Be Gone. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, well, yes, I've done the uh, the anagram, and, and uh, when you scramble Sa- Santa, you get Satan. Yes, that much is true. But are we really doing deep psychological damage children by teaching them what my next guest calls the Santa lie? He says, yes, absolutely. And he says, as long as Santa rules, Satan drools. Pastor Harry is uh, the founder of the Church of the Philadelphia Internet and the author of Escape 666, Bible Prophecy Revealed, and his second book, The Answer Two raptures, always interesting, fascinating to have Pastor Harry on the program. Hello, Pastor Harry. Yes, hi, Richard. How are you? Very well, and Merry Christmas to you. Oh, Merry Santa-less Christmas to you, too. Merry Santa-less Christmas. All right, let's start with the, uh, uh, the, uh, the idea, first of all, that uh, when we teach children 
uh, about uh, Santa Claus, you know, bringing toys and coming down the chimney every uh, 24th of December, that we are de- somehow doing, we'll, we'll leave the, uh, the, uh, the metaphysical damage uh, aside for a minute, but you're quite certain that, that, that deep psychological damage is being done by what you call the Santa lie. Is that true? Yes, deep psychological damage is being done, and, and even deeper spiritual damage is being done to children. You know, it's it's just amazing that two things, you know, first of all, you know, if people believe Christmas is the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, you know, Christ, a Savior has been born unto you, Christ the Lord, then why don't, quote, Christians just teach that to their children? You know, this is the holiday where the traditional birthday of Jesus, where we believe he was born as a baby and he grew up to, you know, to teach the world the way to God and die for the sins of the world. If people believe that then why don't they teach that to their children? Why can't you do both? Because you really can't do both, and I'll tell you why. The, the first reason you can't do both is because you're, you're telling children a lie. You're telling children something that is totally false. When you tell children about the lie of Santa Claus, you're, you're, we're, people are assigning godlike qualities to Santa. That Santa's like God, he knows all things, he knows who's good, he knows who's bad. And in one magical night, he can come into every household of every good child in the world and bring presents. And what happens is children find out very quickly in life that Santa Claus was a big, fat lie. And did their parents and maybe grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers and everyone in their life who they put their trust in was a liar, lied to them. And it shattered, not only does it shatter a child's first faith, their first belief system, it, it does it on December 25th, the day where supposedly you're going to tell them later Jesus was born. So what you're really doing to children is you're, you're creating a first faith religion for them associated with December 25th. And then you're saying, yeah, but Santa was a big fat lie. That's true. But now we're going to tell you about Jesus, and that's true. And, and you know, it's, it's totally ridiculous because if, if, if children don't believe you about I mean, if you lie to your children about Santa Claus, why do you think they're going to then believe you about Jesus? The truth is, they're not going to. They may say they do, but but they're but they really don't. And, and that that is the greatest lie of Santa Claus that it gives ch- a child their first belief system, forever associated with December 25th and Christmas, and then has it shattered in front of their face. And that's why I believe that Satan did create Santa Claus in his own scrambled anagram. And he did that to turn, quote, Christian parents, you know, into liars and destroy their credibility. Uh, except, uh, Pastor Harry, that I would venture to suggest that millions, maybe tens of millions of uh, uh, boys and girls have uh, uh, grew up believing initially in uh, the man in the red suit coming down the chimney. And they all went on, uh, many of them, to become very good Christians. And they were able to somehow... Uh, get over the shock that uh, that Santa Claus, in fact, was mom and dad. Well, I don't think they, quote, get over the shock. You see, and, and then you have to say to yourself, number one, how many children maybe don't even consider Christianity because they were lied to uh, as children about Santa Claus? So we, we don't know how many children are, are, are damaged in that way. And the other way that does damage is, even if people later on in life become, quote, Christians, the psychological scarring and damage is there. 
and in the back of their minds, they're always wondering, maybe Jesus is a big, fat lie, just like Santa Claus was. And that's why I think the Christians as a whole, the people that do come to Jesus, as a whole, they, they suffer from a great spiritual cowardice. There's a great spiritual fear among Christianity, and I believe that the root, the root of that great fear is, is the Santa Claus lie. Because if you look back to the first century Christians and second century Christians, they had a, they had a tremendous faith. You know, those people died died for their faith. They were they would rather be thrown to lions in coliseums. They'd rather be hacked apart by gladiators and torn apart by wild dogs than even denounce their faith in Jesus in in any way. And you know, but the, the different one reason those I believe those Christians had such faith and courage. It's because they weren't set up as children to have their first, their very first religion and faith shattered. Well, but, you say again, uh, uh, Pastor Harry uh, is with us, and the website is uh, satansrapture.com, www.satansrapture.com, and his campaign is Santa Be Gone, and uh, he equates Santa with Satan. He says, in fact, Santa was a creation of, uh, of uh, Satan. Uh, but if there were, uh, you know, this litany of, um, uh, you know, generations of people scarred uh, after they realized that Santa Claus is not real, surely it would be, you know, it'd be written up in all the the, uh, the psychological journals and, and, and so forth. I, I, I was, you know, raised believing in, in, in Santa Claus, uh, and I figured it out on my own. It wasn't real, and but I, I, I consider myself uh, to be a, a Christian, maybe not... Uh, a very good one, but uh, that's you know uh, something you know one works on. But I, you know, it doesn't ring true for me, is what I'm saying, Pastor Harry. Well, I, I mean, I look, I look logically. I look at the. Uh, uh, I mean, there's faith, but then if you look, you know, there's a mounting archaeological and scientific evidence, for example, and there, and even in in the literature at the time, uh, Josephus, for example. We, if you if you look, you don't have to scratch very 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 hard beneath the surface to realize that yes, there was a Jesus. And I mean, I look at the Shroud of Turin, for example, as being some pretty compelling evidence that 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 uh, Jesus was resurrected, and that was his burial cloth. So, but there's nothing uh, you know that compares uh, in terms of of, of Santa. There, you know, there there is uh, nobody's writing about uh, the fact that Santa Claus was in fact uh, is in fact real, and that he can do all the things that uh, we tell kids he can do. There's just there's no comparison, is what I'm saying. Well, there there is there is a comparison because, as I said, you know, nothing is more fragile than a child's little mind. So, which when children are when when their entire first belief system in, in their very first Santa Claus is really their very first religion, and when their very first religion is shattered like glass, it, it does deep very deep psychological damage to that child. Uh, and the damage is unknown and never will be studied because schools don't have the, the courage to explore the damage done by Santa Claus. You have to remember in our country, you know, in America, and maybe in Canada to some degree, but especially in America and some, some other countries, you know, Santa Claus is the sacred cow. You know, you don't touch Santa Claus. They wouldn't even have the courage to do a study of the damage of Santa Claus because they're too afraid to. You know, if you if you even tell people you don't believe in Santa Claus or Santa Claus is a lie, some people get even physically violent. 
Some people even want to attack. They would even try to kill you if you spoke against Santa Claus. I mean, you know, when we did the History Channel show, we did a, we did a special with them in 2005, a part of a weird U.S. Christmas show on the History Channel, and a part of a ritual, I burned a Santa Claus doll. And I, I got a lot of flack from people b- because of doing that. But, you know, the, the thing is, if you read the Gospel, Jesus tells us to be truthful, to be honest. He tells us that all liars will not go to heaven. He said, everyone who maketh and loveth a lie will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it would be better to tie a a millstone, a 500-pound stone around our neck and jump into the seat and to lead a little child astray. All right, let's uh, take a time out. Let me ask uh, uh, you out there, do you think teaching children about Santa Claus is akin to Satan worship? Get on board, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. There is a conspiracy, a Santa conspiracy, says Pastor Harry. Santa is a creation of Satan, and teaching children to believe in Santa Claus creates severe psychological and spiritual damage uh, to children, he says, uh, particularly once they find out that Santa Claus is a lie. Uh, the fact that, uh, that uh, this uh, figure of Santa Claus is attached to the, uh, the same uh, date as the, um, the supposed birth of Christ then creates a conflict in the child um, who says to himself or herself, well, if Santa Claus is not true, if mom and dad lied to me about Santa Claus, then they also lied to me perhaps about Jesus. All right, uh, now, Pastor Harry, if there is a conspiracy, walk me through then, uh, because, you know, the Bible is clear about one thing, and that is that uh, uh, Satan rules the earth. So how did Satan... uh, uh, go about creating this Santa legend, and, 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 and what sort of organizations or institutions did he use to do it? Well, it's interesting that did he use the churches to do it? You know, what's, real, what's really, uh, not amazing, but it's, it's really sickening, is that the only religion that embraced the lie of Santa Claus, you know, and as you said before, you know, it's why teach your child something that you know is false and they're going to find out is false and they're going to find out that you lied. You know, it's, it's ridiculous to even teach a child someone that shatters your credibility. But as I was saying, the only religion that accepts Christian, the lie of Santa Claus is Christianity. And, and, and like if you look at it, Islam rejects the Santa Claus lie. Judaism rejects the Santa Claus lie. Buddhism rejects the Santa Claus lie. Hinduism rejects the Santa Claus lie. And um, even Muslim terrorists will not lie to their children about a Santa Claus, but only the churches do. And in 1933, the Coca-Cola Corporation, and I I do believe the Illuminati, if you believe there's an Illuminati, a secret uh, society of Satanists, you know, whose, whose goal is to take over this world for the Antichrist, then I believe they were the force behind this 1933 Coca-Cola movement. They introduced Santa Claus, as we know him today, as this omniscient being in a in a red suit to children. 
and the churches bought it hook, line, and sinker. The Illuminati are running Coca-Cola? Well, I believe they were behind it. Ah, okay. They, boy, they really misstepped with that new Coke, though, didn't they, the Illuminati? <laughs> yeah, well, they should They should have learned from Santa Claus. Just stay with the classic. You know, it's just like if they, if they would have changed Santa Claus to an orange suit, it, would, it wouldn't have been, the, wouldn't have been the, the same thing. But Illuminati notwithstanding, but the, the point is Satan is the for, real force behind the Santa Claus thing. And we introduced it to the churches in 1933 to America, and the churches jumped on it hook, line, and sinker. And and since that day, Santa Claus has become an institutional lie in America. It's almost like, you know, for the, quote, Christian world and the churches, Santa Claus has become a rite of passage. It's like... Well, yes, that's, that's true. Let me tell you how we handle it in our house, Pastor Harry, and then you can um, give me your thoughts. Uh... Uh, we are Orthodox Christians, and so we we don't talk about uh, Santa Claus per se. We talk about Saint Nicholas, and there was a Saint Nicholas. He was, uh, and he's a very important saint, uh, certainly in the Orthodox uh, faith. And he was known for, you know, being uh, incredibly generous to the needy, and uh, well known for his love of children, and uh, uh, you know his work with the impoverished and so forth. Uh, is there anything wrong with with uh, talking about uh, you know Saint Nicholas? Now we we know uh, as Orthodox Christians, uh, Pastor Harry, that saints commune uh, you know with the living. So, what's wrong with telling children that that Saint Nicholas uh, you know visits us and and and, and gives us gifts? Well, Saint Nicholas is it that was the that was the precursor of Santa Claus. But the point is. Why tell children anything false? Why tell them anything false at all, especially about Christmas? Why, you know, there was a St. Nicholas that gave little, that gave gifts to orphan children, but why, going beyond that, it's just wrong. You see, like I said before the break, Jesus put a very strong emphasis on telling the truth, and he gave a special warning about, he said, it's better to tie a 500-pound stone and around your neck and dive into the sea than to lead a little child astray. They were his exact words. That's what a millstone is. Because he knew the deep psychological damage, you know, that it does to children to, you know, to tell them a lie, like Santa Claus. Because, you know, Santa Claus is just, it's such a blatant lie. And the damage done to children is, is, is unima- it's, 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 it's unimaginable. Okay, well, let's see if, if, uh, if people agree. Let's uh, say hello to Moya in Mississauga, Ontario. And good morning, Hi, Moya. How are you? I'm well. Well, I, when I was little, every Christmas we made a crib. We had baby Jesus and the stable and the animals. And we were, I, was, I knew about Jesus from the time I was two or three years old. Santa Claus, to me, is an allegory. It's a fairy tale. It's like saying, you know, Red Riding Hood and the Three Pigs and um, all those fairy tales, little yeah, Goldilocks and the Three Bears and you right. know. Right? Did you, Moya? When you found people, out, when you found out, allegory. when you found out he wasn't true, Moya. When you found out he wasn't true, or it wasn't true. Do you? Who found out? When you found out? Oh, my mother told me when okay. I was old enough to understand. She said. That Santa is a symbol for love and giving, and we were told who Saint Nicholas was. I knew that Santa Claus stood for Saint Nicholas, and I knew that he was a bishop or an archbishop, and okay. that he was known for his. Generosity. Do you think it did deep psychological or spiritual damage no, to you? No, I was old enough when she told me. She said, 
it, we give gifts. It's a symbol of love and giving gifts in a loving spirit. And it's for the kids so they can have fun. It's like a good, but, you know, all the fairy tales have um, a teaching behind them, like Little Red Riding Hood and the Three Bears have. And, and the, the, the little pigs, they have to build their house sure. strong. Pastor and Harry, this all sounds, that sounds reasonable. And, and, and Moya uh, doesn't sound to me like she was, she was uh, impacted in an egg or damaged. Well, yeah. No, we but I do think Satan. We is, don't know I do that. think the commercialization of Christmas is wrong. Uh, yes, well, absolutely. The whole thing that you've got to spend hundreds of dollars to give your friends and relatives Christmas but presents is really part silly. of becoming a slave to the Santa Claus lie. You see, you know, every year Christians complain Christmas is too commercial. Christmas yeah. isn't about Jesus. Christmas isn't about. It's become a commercial nightmare, all about toys and presents, all because of the Santa Claus lie. No, it isn't. It's the it's moment you tell a child the lie of Santa Claus. That's not true. You become a slave to Santa Claus. You not become me. a slave I'm to sorry. that lie. No, you're, you've got it wrong. There is, it's over commercialization, but, but that's it's not because of, of Santa, Santa Claus. Claus lie. Okay, Moya, let me just jump in, and, and I appreciate your Moya, I appreciate your uh, your your thoughts. And I have to agree with Moya, uh, uh, Pastor. I think it's there is it's it's a there are degrees here, uh, and uh, I think that if you find uh, the people that are, that have chosen to um, uh, you know allow the gift giving to to get out of hand and uh, uh, totally get out of control. Uh, you know they're they're um, they're probably a, you know nominal uh, Christians at best. Uh, the, there is no uh, room for for Jesus in the equation. Never was. Never will be. Or well, we can't say never will be. We we would hope. We would pray that there would be. But uh, so to lay it all on uh, on uh, you know Coca Cola's creation in 1933. No, I'm not blaming Coca Cola. No, I know, but that's what we're blaming the the churches for accepting this lie. And you know the caller was talking about Santa's like a fairy tale. Santa is unlike any fairy tale because when you tell a child a fairy tale, you tell them it's make believe. You, know, you, you, but see, with Santa Claus, you don't tell your child it's make believe. You tell them it's real, and then there's a mall Santa Claus, and you, and then you take your child, and that lie is more reinforced. And then, well, why did Jesus put such an emphasis on telling the truth, and you come along and say, no, it's okay to lie to your children? It's okay to shatter a first belief because nobody tells their child that Santa Claus is a fairy tale. It's not true. Well, you know, parents, unfortunately, parents parents, uh, lie to their children all the time about a whole host of of things, uh, the old Woody Allen line. uh, You know, everything our parents told us uh, was good for us was a lie. You know, red meat, milk, college. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll come back. Pastor Harry says it's time for uh, to get rid of Santa Claus. Santa be gone. We'll get to uh, Barry and Calgary and others. If you've got a line, hold on to it. The Conspiracy Show continues after this. Don't go away. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Santa rules and Satan drools, says Pastor Harry, founder of the uh, Church of Philadelphia Internet. And uh, he's with us with his battle cry, Santa be gone. 
let's go out to uh, Calgary and uh, say hello to Barry. Hello, Barry. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Well, thank you. Uh, growing up in the 1950s in Quebec, which was very rigidly Catholic, we were kept in the dark about matters related to sexuality. And one of the myths that I grew up with was that if uh, uh, mom brought home a baby uh, from the hospital, it was courtesy of, of the stork. And, uh, you know, as small children, we bought into this. And, of course, uh, later on, uh, we had a lot of difficulty simply because there was uh, this veil of, uh, you know, myth, superstition, fear, anxiety, misdirection, all related to sex. And uh, a great deal of it, I think we could lay at the feet of clerical authorities, including, of course, uh, various Christian denominations. But to simplify my question, uh, Pastor Harry, a question for you. Was it wrong for my parents to tell me that it was the stork that had delivered uh, my younger brother? Good well, question, I, Barry. I, yeah, I, I do believe it was wrong to tell them it was a magical stork that brings babies, because people could just tell their children, God brings babies. You see, but I, I think the stork goes back, because usually the stork and children asking about babies and where do they come from, that, that usually comes after Santa Claus. It's, it's sort of like once parents lie to their children about Santa Claus, it opens the door to, to continue lying to their children and lie after lie after lie. And, of course, then would be added the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy. And, you know, it just compiles lies upon lies. And it takes us very far away from what Jesus taught to tell your children the truth, you know, the best that they can accept it. So if a little child asks, where does babies come from? They come from God, period. And then as they get older and they learn a little bit more about sexuality, you can tell them, you know, answer their questions a little more the way a child can understand them. But the Santa Claus lie, it already starts a parent off as a total liar. So then, you know, when you could see the, the damage done by Santa Claus is different and deeper to every child. But what it, you, what, it, what, it, what it does, it's unmistakable. It sets your parents up as somebody that doesn't tell you the truth. Because it really, one of the role of a parent, to me anyway, is to, be, is to protect your child, to be a protector to your child, and to be a truth teller. A child looks to a parent as the one that's going to you know, tell them the truth about things, like are monsters real or is this real? And right away, you destroy, Satan gets parents, I believe, to destroy their credibility with the Santa Claus lie. And as children get older, once, you'll believe, once their parents lie to their children about Santa Claus, children will doubt everything they're told. That, you know, that sex would be wrong before you're married, that drugs are bad, that smoking dope is bad, that drinking is bad. Whatever you tell, it's because they're thinking, well, why should I believe this person? They lied about Santa Claus. All right, let's say hello to uh, Mike Bye. in Toronto. Mike, uh, you're on the line with Pastor Harry. How you doing? Well. <clears throat> uh, my theory is this. I think that churches created the devil in order to get people to go to church and, uh, and make the church rich. Church, the church invented Satan to convince people to attend church, Pastor Harry? Well, 
you know, I, I, that's a very popular belief. In fact, the the, uh, the official Church of Satan out of San Francisco, you know, teaches that. But I don't, you know, I don't believe the cheap churches created Satan for two reasons. One, it doesn't work. Well, it's, it's, it doesn't. Religion is a big business, people, is it not? Trying to make people do good. I mean, churches trying to make people scare people with a devil to make them do good doesn't work. Yeah, but, but how, how does the Roman Catholic Church run their new airline that they've got? Their own bank? Their own stamps? Well, I'm not Catholic. We're Protestant. I believe they're corrupt and wrong. Well, it's all the same thing. But I believe they're corrupt and wrong. But the point is, the reason the reason I believe there's a hmm. Satan... Did Jesus one... have a fancy church? Well, no, I believe... No, no, Jesus, from what I was taught, he was out in the field there, wasn't he? Well, he didn't Jesus... have any fancy buildings to pay well, heat. I don't or... have a fancy building. So, you, hey? I mean, I don't agree with the way the churches are structured or set up. You don't I, have a building to, with you. to conduct your, your, your servants? No, I have an Internet ministry. I don't have a church building. Okay, so the Internet is your, your building. Well, well Michael, we're going around and around here, but the, if your point is that uh, it, it was right. the church that invented Satan, I mean, Jesus talked about uh, about Satan. Here's the point, though, Pastor Harry. That's only within the book. There, what about the perimeters outside of the book? The book was written by man. Yes, well, other, there are... The, no, argument here. You know, we're, we're trying to talk about Santa Claus law. Now you want to debate well, Santa Claus, debate Satan, the you're putting it all together is the same thing. It's not the same thing, because Jesus talked about the reality of Satan. Jesus taught about Satan more than anyone in, in the history of the world. So Jesus taught us about a Satan and that a Satan is real. All right, That's Mike. That's what you asked me. You know, and I personally believe Satan is real, but I also believe that Satan has corrupted the churches, and he, the greatest damage he's ever done is through his lie of Santa. And if you scramble the name Santa... Sure enough, it's Satan. What? How do you reconcile that with uh, with um, uh, you know uh, people that uh, raise money uh, for let's say for for example the Salvation Army and uh, they might be dressed in a in a in a Santa suit ringing the bell and people come in and they put money into that pot for the poor. How do you reconcile that? How, how do I? Yes. Well, it's just it's just all part. It's all part of the Santa Claus lie. I mean, even even if people were giving money. It's still, it's still all part of the Santa Claus lie. They don't have to dress up like a Santa Claus, you know, to get money to get money for 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 people in need at Christmas. There's just no, there's just no, there's just no need to to feed into this, into this massive lie. And it just, it's just amazing how the church is just, they they fight, they hold on to the Santa Claus lie, as though their life depends on it. You know, they should have just never accepted it. They should have just, um, they, they should have just, just let it go. But, it, you know, they didn't have to have Santa Claus. You know, and, and as I said, back in, in 1900, there wasn't a Santa Claus as we know Santa Claus today. Well, you know, maybe we need to go then the, the, whole, the whole nine yards here, Pastor Harry, because Jesus, uh, you know, didn't tell us to, uh, to mark his, uh, to celebrate his birth by putting up a Christmas tree or buying uh, uh, presents or stringing lights or having people over for dinner, uh, any of that. Let's, I mean, Christmas... Well, that's true, but you ha that's true, but you have to look at, okay, but you have to look at, Okay, he didn't teach us to, to celebrate Christmas itself, but you have to say to yourself, okay, what damage is done by celebrating the birth of Jesus 
was it was a traditional birthday on December 25th. You know, most people know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But the point is, what damage is done by celebrating Christmas? Well, because some of the trappings of Christmas, and I'll leave Santa out of it for a moment, but they'll... You kick Santa, okay, let's, let's just take the premise, which I always tell people. See, I'm not against Christmas. I'm not against Christmas at all. I'm not against Christmas trees. I'm not against Christmas lights. But a lot of those, a lot of the origin of those, of the trappings are, are pagan. Right, but it doesn't matter in that sense. Here's what you have to ask yourself. Is there any damage done by celebrating the birth of Jesus on December 25th in telling the world that you believe a Savior was born? Because Jesus was born as a human, and he was born as a child in a manger. So is there any damage celebrating a traditional day, any spiritual or psychological damage done to people? No. Is, is there any damage? Well, we, has, we don't know, and, well, and your argument damage, was that it's never been studied. Uh, the point is, what damage can be done saying we're gonna, we pick the day when we're going to worship, celebrate the day as our Savior was born? How can that do, do any damage? Well, the, it, it the, can't do damage. It's the temptation, perhaps, uh, that, that, that uh, is the most damaging, uh, and maybe that is what is responsible. Uh, not Santa Claus uh, for the commercialization is... Uh, you know the, uh, the 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 tree, the the lights, the uh, the, the gifts. Uh, you got to make the perfect the dinner. The pressure that's brought. I mean, a lot you of people don't have are to do it, but you don't have. To, well, that's within yourself. If people are worried about making the, the quote perfect dinner, but the point is, if you kick the Santa Claus lie out of Christmas, it becomes a much more pure event, and then you could say to yourself, "Yeah, true. The orange is the origin of a Christmas tree was pagan." But if I have a tiny little tree, a, a little plastic tree up in my kitchen with little lights to celebrate, you know, to Christmas that, the, you know, God has sent the light into the world, if you look at a little tree like that, it becomes innocuous. It's when you attach the tree to the Santa lie, and Santa's going to put the presents, then right there's the lie of Santa again under the tree, you know, the, connected with the tree. Now there's going to bring the magical presents underneath the tree. So if you take the Santa Claus lie out, most of these things are just harmless. You know, having a little Christmas tree in a corner with lights on it, that's not going to do any damage to a child. Saying, well, you know, we, we, have a, we like to have a little Christmas tree and put lights on it to show that the light of Christ was born into the world. That's not going to do any, any damage to a child or, or, to, you know, uh, or, to, or to say, in fact, you could even go as far to say, I mean, you could give each child one present for Christmas and say, we give a present to our children every year, one little gift, because the wise, to celebrate the fact that the wise men knew that the Christ was born, the baby Jesus was the Savior of the world, and they gave him gifts. But you see, one gift doesn't make you a slave to Santa Claus, because why it's so over-commercialized is because of a Santa lie. And parents, like I said before, you become a slave to Santa Claus. You have to take your child to a mall Santa and then usually sometimes you have to pay money to have a picture with your child with Santa or even see Santa. And then if your child has Santa Claus for 10 toys, you're almost forced to try your best to get as many of the toys as possible. What if, what if children uh, are told uh, that the, the man in the red suit is, uh, uh, you know, he's not real. Uh, he's just a man with, with a fake beard, and uh, it's just... Uh, a fun thing to believe in, but he's not really, doesn't really come down the chimney, but we like to pretend. Uh, is that all right? Well, at least at that point, 
you're not lying to your children. You're, you're telling them the Santa Claus isn't real. It's just a, if you say it like that, well, just like you read your child a fairy tale about Jack and the Beanstalk, and your child said, are there really giants that eat people? And you say, no, it's just a fairy tale. At that point, you, you really haven't partaken in the, in the Santa Claus lie. If, if parents have already um, done that, they've partaken in the Santa Claus lie, and now they're listening to this program and they're saying, well, this Pastor Harry makes sense. He sounds fairly reasonable. Uh, how do they undo that damage? Okay, well, one, fortunately, your show, it's not Christmas yet. So if somebody's listening, you, you, can, you can undo some of the damage by telling your child the truth tomorrow morning. You see, it, it, at least you still came clean with your child before Christmas. At least you still came clean, and, and you're the one telling them Santa Claus is a lie. It's better at least you admit that, you know, it's a, something, it's a cultural thing, however you explain it to a child. It's something that, that parents do, and they've done since for uh, almost um, uh, almost 100 years, and, and it's just not right. Because Santa Claus isn't real, and you should tell your children it should come from you, so at least you came clean, so they're not finding out that Santa Claus is a lie from other people. So at least you, at least what you're doing, you're, you're, you'll salvage some credibility. You All know, right. It, All right. Pastor uh, Harry, stay with us. Church of question. Philadelphia Internet is uh, with us, and the website, satansrapture.com. Uh, the other uh, thing that Pastor Harry is known for is deciphering uh, Bible codes, and we'll talk to him about the amazing and shocking Santa Bible code when we come back. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. And the website is richardserrett.com. Let me spell that for you. The last name is S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com, the website. And I ask you also to visit the uh, the website theconspiracyshow.com, dot uh, where you can keep up to date uh, on uh, the latest uh, regarding the uh, the television project, which we're trying to get off the ground. We're getting close, as I mentioned last week, and hopefully we'll have very good news in the new year. Uh, Pastor Harry is with us. The website is satansrapture dot com. A lot of websites I'm throwing at you, but he uh, is on a campaign to uh, to expunge Santa Claus from Christmas. He says. Santa is a creation of Satan. Uh, let's uh, before we get to the Satan or the uh, Santa Bible codes, uh, Pastor Harry. Let's say hello to John in Cambridge, who was taught about Santa as a child. John, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm sir? well, thank you. I do have a question for Pastor Harry. All right, let's have it. When we were growing up in the late twenties and early thirties, on Christmas Eve when we went to bed. We never saw a Christmas tree or decorations or presents of any kind. And when we were told, when you get up in the morning, you will be going to church to celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ, which was fine. Our mother and dad told us straight out. When we got back home in the morning, the front room was opened, 
and there was a tree with presents. You have been good through the year, therefore you have been given presents. And it was named from Santa Claus. But first we did the birthday of Christ. And John, were you, were, did your parents, if you recall, did they tell you that a man in a red suit came down a chimney and uh, that's, how he, that's how it all happened? No, the only thing that we knew, we left out cookies and milk because he may be hungry on his long journey. Ah. And do you think that you were psychologically damaged after you discovered that your parents lied to you about that? In no way whatsoever. All right. Because our first thing was... To go to church, yes. We're the, Roman Catholic. The reasons for the season, as they say. Johnny and, Cambridge, thank you. Well, Pastor Harry, all I can we can offer up here is, of course, anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, that uh, people calling in and saying they weren't damaged. But Well, they don't. They may... They may sh- say they're not damaged. They may believe they're not damaged, but that doesn't mean they weren't damaged. Fair enough. All right. Let's uh, talk about uh, the uh, the Bible codes. You've been on the program before. I think people who listen know how this works. It's a computer program, and uh, uh, it, it finds uh, equidistant lettering throughout the Bible that contain messages in certain books of the Bible that uh, could only have been placed there, you would contend, uh, by a, a supernatural uh, being of extraterrestrial origin or interdimensional origin, what have you, that being a God. Uh, and uh, these, uh, these Bible codes uh, that are scattered throughout the, the Bible uh, uh, are very uh, prophetic, uh, you know, or in, in, in hindsight, really. I mean, they foretold the assassination of uh, um, Itzhak Rabin, the... Uh, uh, the um, the rise of Hitler, uh, just about every major, histo- major historical event are contained in these Bible codes. So what have you found in the Bible codes about Santa Claus? Well, what's, what's interesting in the Bible code is, it, theoretically in Hebrew, you could spell the name Santa a few different ways, because they have two different S's in, in the Hebrew alphabet, and they have two different T's in the Hebrew alphabet, and you can even end the, the Santa with an A or really with a correct way would be if a high, an H, like an H sound, like Santa. And you could spell Santa about three or four different ways in Hebrew. And every way you put it in the Bible code, it comes up with the same exact information. Santa's encoded with evil, lie, abomination, damage, um, wickedness. There, every single horrible term you could come up with in the Hebrew language is encoded with the name Santa, and no matter how, and Satan, and no matter how you, no matter how you spell it, and it, it just, it just that, it's just that's just more evidence that it's just something, you know, we should have nothing, we should have nothing to do with, and you know, it's like I said, that that really amazed me with the Bible code because, like I said, I found many things in the Bible code, including you know the name of the name of the Antichrist, who will be, what'll do, and. It, that's the same principle where you could spell the name of the Antichrist wrong, the name of this coming fifth Buddha, you could theoretically spell it different ways, just like Santa, but the same information is encoded even if you spell it, like, quote, wrong. And, and I think that that's really telling. If you believe in the Bible code, it's more of a witness against the Santa Claus lie. You know, it's interesting, your, your show's called, the, you know, The Conspiracy Show, and I would say Santa Claus really is a, is a, is a conspiracy against our children and it's just something if you 
if you really, the more you sit and think about it, the more wrong and evil Santa Claus becomes. But the devil doesn't want us to sit and think about it. He just wants us to promote it. And I think a lot of people, too, don't want to believe Santa Claus did damage to them because that means their parents did damage to them. So I think there's almost like a, a psychological block, you know, to um, that people don't want to believe it did damage because then they have to put blame on their parents. Were you, were, you, were you taught about Santa Claus as a child, Pastor Harry? Was I taught about? Yes, I was taught about Santa Claus. And how did you find out it was a lie? I found out it was a lie because I was looking for something, and I stumbled upon. Um, I, I stumbled upon, or there was a closet in the upstairs, and I was looking for something, and I opened the closet door, and there was two of the presents that I asked Santa Claus for. One of the presents my little sister did. I was six years old, and I was just staring at the presents, and I realized. How, how can this be true? I realize it's a lie. I said, there's no Santa Claus. Give me, it's all a big lie. And then to make it worse, this, the very same day, my mother said, now remember, you know, Santa Claus is coming. And then I said, really? Yes, yeah, Santa's coming. And then and that, that's why I realized my, my mother's lying to me. I couldn't, it really did damage to me because it, it really showed me, well, it's like, it, it it was like getting hit in the face by a by a, like with almost like physically being punched in the face because I'm saying look what happened because the lie continued for five more days and then the other damaging thing the Santa Claus lie does it's not one lie because as a little child starts to think or reason or hear things from other people like a child might say well mommy we don't have a chimney so how can Santa Claus come down our chimney. And then instead of the mother saying, well, Santa Claus isn't real, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a myth people have. It, 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 see, then what happens, the parent's forced to tell a second lie. Well, uh, he has a magic key, so he comes to the house with magic keys that don't have a chimney. And then if, if that, and so every time a child tries to use his mind to believe, to see through the Santa lie, or why is, there, why is there so many Santas at the mall? Or why is there a mall Santa replacing another Santa? And then it, it forces a parent to tell more lies. So you become a slave to this Santa Claus lie. You have to keep lying. And then also you have to keep standing in line and trying to buy these presents. Because, it, you know, if your child asks for ten presents from Santa, and all the other kids do, and for some reason you can't afford or get the gifts, well, your child's going to feel slighted especially when all the other children get everything they wanted from Santa and your child only gets a few things, your child may feel slighted or he start making feel like he's not good enough for Santa. I, I got you. Okay, let's go down to uh, uh, your, your neck of the woods, uh, Buffalo, New York, and uh, Diane. You're on the line with Pastor Harry here on The Conspiracy Show. Hi. Hi there. I've been listening with just apt attention. I find it fascinating because... I grew up in the um, early 60s, and um, my first memory of being alive at Christmas time, my mother said to my sister, I'm the youngest, she said, don't tell her that Santa is real. Tell her that he's just a man who tries to help communication, where children can speak to him when they might be afraid to speak to their parents. But she never let me speak to a Santa Claus at a mall. She told me that Santa was an example that Men and women should be generous to those who have greater needs than they do. Just a good person, a saintly person that we could emulate. Couldn't we 
try to change Santa into something like that because we do need examples of people who are good. Diane, great call. Pastor Harry, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, it does, but I, I think when it comes to the Santa Claus lie, the best thing to do is just get rid of it. Just throw this lie out totally get, and just start over again because we can, there are real-life examples of peop, real people that are generous and help other people. All right, let's uh, take one final time out. We'll come back. And uh, Pastor Harry, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. We just have a few minutes when we come back, and I don't know if there, if there is any... Uh, I know you're constantly looking for Bible codes. If there is any uh, anything you'd like to share with us that you can uh, uh, summarize in just a few moments, but uh, we'll do that on the other side. And I'm beginning to wonder, is it possible Pastor Harry works for Coca-Cola's competition? Is he a spy for Pepsi? <laughs> I jest. He's in earnest, and I respect him for that. All right, back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, this week's poll question on uh, the richardserrett.com uh, website, richardserrett.com website, is global warming real? And uh, some early results, 65.2% say no, it's a hoax. 17.4% say yes, we must dramatically reduce CO2 emissions immediately. And four, uh, sorry, 17.4% uh, say yes, the Earth is warming, but it's part of a natural cycle. There's nothing we can do about it. But clearly, 65.2% say it's a hoax. Uh, so, uh, again, richardserrett.com if you uh, would like to participate in the poll. And very quickly, next week on the show, rescheduled from uh, two weeks ago, uh, we will finally hook up with the uh, one of the major whistleblowers in the uh, uh, Project Pegasus to discuss uh, teleportation and time travel. Uh, Andrew uh, Basiago will be with us. Again, team leader of Project Pegasus. He was to join us a couple weeks ago and uh, fell ill. So he's on next Sunday. That's December the 27th, our first show after Christmas. Pastor Harry, just a few minutes remain. Um, I know you're constantly on the lookout for uh, for uh, for new Bible codes. Anything uh, that has jumped out at you that we need to be concerned about? Yes. Um, this year, we're, we're right now we're in the Hebrew year of fifty-seven seventy, which, which is the which is the equivalent in our Western calendar to twenty ten, and twenty ten is the most I would say the most encoded and the most faithful year in the entire Bible code. And in the year 2010, Israel is supposed to, well, it's encoded that Israel will go to war with Iran, and that will trigger the biblical apocalypse. So there's a lot of evidence in the Bible that 2010 will, will, will be the, when the Great Tribulation, the apocalypse starts. And Israel has said, you know, it's interesting when that's in the Bible code, and Israel has repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly said to the world, they, ha they only have until June 2010 to stop Iran's nuclear program, or it's too late. They believe Iran could have a nuclear weapon and will destroy them. And, and it, just in the last two weeks, Iran just test, successfully test-fired a medium-range solid rocket missile that can hit Israel. And Iran right now is working on, they're very close to getting, it's called a neutron inhibitor, which is a, 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 it's a basic word for a nuclear detonator. So that's the last piece of the puzzle they really need is to develop this detonator system and just enrich enough uranium to make a nuclear missile. So the Bible code warns of 2010, it's the most encoded year in the Bible for, for um, you know, Bible code's possibilities. 
but it's got the Bible code. I believe God is warning us through the code that 2010 could be the year when everything starts. And if that's true, that means that this is our Murray last Christmas. So, you know, in light of that, if not in 2010, for sure in 2011, Israel is going to hit Iran. And that will trigger all the events you know, we read about in the book of Revelation. And, you know, people can read that on our site and know why and what will happen when Israel hits Iran. You know, at satansrapture.com, our site. But, uh, Richard, if you really think of it like that, if this could be our very Murray last Christmas, then why don't we make it a true Christmas and kick that Santa Claus lie out once and for all? Well, you've you've uh, managed to bring it all back home. Uh, uh, I don't with... know how I did that. <laughs> I, I did do that, I guess. Uh, Pastor Harry, it's always interesting having you on the program, and um, we'll uh, speak again uh, in the new year. Merry Christmas uh, to you. I don't think it's going to be our last. I hope you're wrong. I know you hope you're wrong. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll check in with you from time to time to uh, uh, to find out the latest about uh, well, your investigations into Bible code. So thank you for this. And so thank you for having the courage to let me come on your show and even do this show. I my, really mean that. Uh, my pleasure. All right. Pastor Harry, satansrapture.com. Well, you can make of that what you will. Uh, just a reminder, again, uh, the, uh, the program, The Conspiracy Show, continues uh, next uh, Sunday. We'll be on again the 27th. And uh, then our first show back uh, will be in 2010, will be January the 3rd. We're not missing a beat here. Every Sunday, come uh, hell or high water, uh, and I'm sure Pastor Harry foresees both in our immediate future. Uh, this program will be on Sunday nights, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., as long as I can possibly do it. And uh, I, I wanted to remind you uh, that uh, if you're at all interested in participating in my talk radio program, which I'll be teaching or hope to teach at the Toronto Media and Film College, uh, the time is nigh. Time is running short to register. So if you go on to... Uh, the website richardserrett.com and in the right hand uh, upper right hand corner you'll see the ad for that talk radio learn how to produce write and host in the talk radio and TV industry uh, click on that it'll give you all the details uh, for this 39 hour 13 week course uh, that I will be offering again you um, if you're still interested it's to be offered in January 2010 you uh, better get in touch with me very fast very quickly uh, all right. My thanks uh, once again to uh, Dan Ellison and uh, a very Merry Christmas, Dan, and a Happy New Year. But I'll see you next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.